He attended Cornell University Medical Center for internship in internal medicine in 1979 and completed his training at NYU where he was resident, chief resident, NIH training fellow and dermatology surgery fellow from 1979 to 1982. His research is in the areas of risk factors and prognosis for malignant melanoma and other skin cancers and factors leading to the aging of the skin. He is the author of numerous articles and abstracts in professional journals, as well as lead editor of Cancer of the Skin, the major textbook in this field. Dr. Regal has testified before Congress regarding the effects of ozone depletion on skin cancer. He has made over 800, 600, sorry, 600 presentations at medical and governmental policy conferences worldwide and has chaired numerous national and international conferences and symposia. He often appears on national television, including CNN, ABC, Fox, NBC, and CBS, and his research and opinions are regularly cited in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many other national magazines and newspapers. Dr. Regal serves with many professional and charitable organizations related to his research interests. He is a current president of the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery and is the immediate past president of the American Dermatological Association. In 1999, he served as president of the American Academy of Dermatology and also served for nine years as a director of the American Board of Dermatology. He, is al he also serves as a vice chair of the MIT Educational Counselor Program in charge of admissions interviewing for Manhattan. Dr. Regal has also received numerous awards and honors, including the American Cancer Society's National Honor Citation for Skin Cancer Programs and Presidential Citations from the American Academy of Dermatology and American Society for Dermatologic Surgery for Public Education Programs in Skin Cancer. In addition, Dr. Regal maintains a private practice in Manhattan where he specializes in skin cancer, sun damage, and aging problems of the skin, and also lives in Vail, Colorado, where he enjoys skiing, golf, and fly fishing. It is my honor to introduce to you Dr. Regal. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. I apologize, my ear clogged up on the plane last night, so if you see me turning like this, it's not because I'm unbalanced, it's just that the ear's clogged. So I don't know if anybody does ENT work here, but I could probably use some help. Well, it's certainly uh, really a pleasure to come out here today, and uh, it's been certainly exciting. It's, it's wonderful to see so many people here, and I love to teach, so I'm really honored that you've selected me to try to give you some information about a field I'm biased, I know Zoe gave a great talk before, but I think this is the most important area within dermatology. Just by way of disclosures, I do some uh, consulting and some uh, investigating for various companies involved with this. Now let's begin with some of the data, and uh, just to begin with, to show you the magnitude of the problem, there's more skin cancers than all other cancers combined in the United States. And actually, when we were talking about non-melanoma skin cancer today, uh, these are actually old estimates, but there are probably at least a million and a quarter newly diagnosed cases of non-melanoma skin cancer each year in the U.S., which is really a, a very important public health problem, especially in the uh, times we're talking about in terms of uh, health system reform. Another way of looking at this, which is equally important, is that one in five Americans will get a skin cancer of some sort during his or her lifetime. So clearly, it is a very important problem. Now we're gonna focus again today on non-melanoma skin cancer, but these are the mean ages of onset of the United States, although over time they're actually getting a little younger. We really see skin cancer, especially non-melanoma skin cancer, in younger people. 20 years ago, it'd be very unusual to see somebody with a basal cell in their 20s. We get teenagers with basal cells now. Now why is that important? This is data from the Census Bureau, and you can see how the population is aging. That little hump is the baby boomers, and as they get older, we're expecting to see more in terms of skin cancer rates, particularly in the area of non-melanoma skin cancer. And this was a paper that came out several years ago from the Mayo Clinic, which showed that not only are we seeing a rate of increase in older Americans, but especially we demonstrated an increase in non-melanoma skin cancer among young women, women and men, and that basically says this problem's not gonna go away because despite everything we're doing, the rates of non-melanoma skin cancer are also rising. This is just a slide to remind you that people do die of non-melanoma skin cancer. Most of the skin cancer deaths are from melanoma, but in fact, 
about, it's estimated about 2,800 Americans will die from non-melanoma skin cancer this year, primarily from metastatic squamous cell. That's the number one reason, a few other minor reasons, but that's number one. Well, let's begin with actinic keratoses, and uh, as you know, they originally were called senile keratoses. The older I get, the less PC that term is. Uh, but uh, it's really not appropriate because we do see AKs in younger people. How many of you have seen an AK in a teenager? I mean, you know, if I asked that question, I've seen it. If I asked that question 10 years ago, that would be almost unheard of. So we're definitely seeing these in younger and younger people. What causes actinic keratoses? Well, actinic in Greek means sun-related, and this was an important research project that I had to do. I had to take a picture of a sunset in Hawaii. I just couldn't get anybody to fund it, unfortunately. But uh, Some things about actinic keratoses. Uh, as you expect, since they're sun-related, the closer you are to the equator, the higher the prevalence is. Um, the risk factors are older, male, the more sun you've had, the fairer skin you are. But the fact is that anybody can get actinic keratoses. You can find them even in African-Americans. You can see them. It's much rarer. Uh, but they're the same risk factors that you would see for invasive squamous cell. And that really leads us to the big controversy in this area, is are actinic keratoses actually early squamous cell carcinomas or squamous cell carcinomas in situ? And there's a lot of debate in, among dermatopathologists about this, and it's interesting. I mean, both sides give a very good argument on this. I view this slightly differently, and what I view this is a spectrum of early photo damage on one side going all the way to invasive squamous cell carcinoma on the other side. So where do you draw the line? If you draw the line over here, you're saying actinic keratoses are pre-squamous cells. But if you draw the line over here, you're saying actinic keratoses are early squamous cells. Well, that's great from a semantics and a pathology point of view, but from a clinical point of view, the reality, what it tells you is you probably have to treat these things. And we do know certain things about actinics. That there, there is a relationship to the development of invasive squamous cell carcinoma. This was a case from uh, NYU. And you can see, if you look on the dorsum of the hand, you see some actinic keratoses. This is the same patient about uh, eight years later. And you see an invasive erosive squamous cell there. So clearly, over time, a percentage of these will evolve into invasive squamous cell carcinoma. Now, when you look at these and another way, as markers for increased risk for melanoma, there are several papers that have looked at this. So, again, the number of actinic keratosis you have is a risk factor for your chance of getting invasive squamous cell carcinoma, which makes sense if they're also precursors. And this is a recent paper that just came out to look at this in the International Journal of Cancer. And you can see that if you had 20 or more AKs, your chance of getting a squamous cell is about 11 times greater than if you had no AKs. Now, we talk about markers, but in terms of AKs, what we're really concerned about is precursors. In other words, what is the chance of an individual AK progressing to invasive squamous cell? And there are several papers that have looked at this. Um, it's a very confusing field because it's very hard to do the math. Small changes in the assumptions and the calculations make big changes in the answers. But I'll show you some of the papers out there and then give you kind of a conclusion. This is one uh, summary that came out looking at several papers, and that multiple studies have shown that 60% of AKs arise, uh, SCCs rather, arise in AKs. And this was another paper that showed 97% of SCCs that were examined, there was a contiguous AK. Now, again, it's hard to determine because the shoulder of an SCC might look like a contiguous AK or not, but there's certainly some data for this. This is Robin Marx's original study from Robin Marx, is a dermatologist from Australia. And this is the, it's almost 20 years ago this was done now. He looked at almost 1,700 patients who were 40 or over in Australia. For those of you who have been to Australia or have never been to Australia, everybody is basically fair-skinned. They all have a lot of sun damage. They all look like they live in Arizona, basically. Uh, and uh, it's sort of like a subset of the population that's really been hammered. But he looked at these patients. He followed them for five years. And it turned out that 17 of them, uh, within the first year, that were diagnosed with squamous cell carcinoma. And in, all seven, in 10 of the 17, there was a spot where they knew by photography there was an earlier AK that was there. So he did all the calculations and determined that the annu annual risk of progression of an individual AK in a given year was less than one in 1,000. And he actually concluded from the paper that it probably wasn't cost-effective to treat AKs because there's so many of them and only one in 1,000 convert each year. Well. Similarly, about a year later, uh, Dotson and Despain, who are dermatologists in uh, Missouri, looked at the same data. And they looked at, and they really had a different interpretation, as you'll see. 
In this study, the average number of AKs per patient was 7.7, and the annual risk of an individual lesion progressing was about 1 in 400 when they looked at the data. So the probability that an AK would not progress to invasive squamous cell is 1 minus that, or 0.9976. I don't look early in the morning for the math, but I'll try to walk you through it. The probability that none of the 7.7 AKs would progress is that to the 7.7th power, which is about 98%. The probability that at least one of the 7.7 AKs would progress is 1 minus that, or roughly about 2%. So for the average person, the chance of one of their AKs progressing to invasive squamous cell is about 2% in one year. Now, what about the probability that at least one of them will progress in 10 years? That's more reasonable than looking at just for one year. And again, the same math, the probability that none of them will progress is about 98%. The probability that none of the leaves will progress in 10 years is that to the 10th power, or about 83%. And the chance that at least one of their AKs over 10 years will progress to invasive squamous cell is now about 1 in 6. So you see, as you start looking at this realistically, the individual lesion is not the important thing. It's the chance of the patient really progressing to invasive squamous cell. So when you look at this data, there are really two important distinct questions to consider. What is the chance of a patient developing an invasive squamous cell? And again, this is another look that was bottle that was done a little bit later looking at this. And probably it's estimated that anywhere from 6 to 10% of patients with multiple lesions are going to develop at least one squamous cell in 10 years. So in the average patient, the very low yearly transformation rate is not the key. It's again the fact that they're going to get squamous cells, they just have a lot of AKs. Now, Rick Glogow did a review about 10 years ago in the JAN looking at five existing studies. And you see there's the Mark study and the Dotson study I just showed you before, two other studies by Jim Graham, and one study done by Mark Nestor looking at HMO data in Florida. And you see the numbers anywhere from probably, uh, you know, two to Jim Graham's was 16%. So let's say it's four or five percent chance of them progressing. Um, this is a paper that just came out in cancer. This was a study done uh, across several VA hospitals in the country, and they looked at the one-year risk of an AK progressing to an in situ primary SEC was about 0.6%. The risk after four years was 2.5%. This is for an individual lesion. Interestingly enough, they also showed from the paper that the majority of all the SECs had arisen from AKs, and also 36% of basal cells, they felt, had arisen from AKs. Now, this was pretty controversial when it came out, and there had been some letters to the editor on this, because the concern was perhaps the AKs were just there. It was a patient with a lot of photo damage, and the basal cell just arose there. So that has to shake out a little bit, but the authors of the paper are pushing that AKs can evolve into basal cells. Not sure that that's so yet. So when you look at all the data, it's probably anywhere from about 8, 7, 8 percent. So overall, again, the chance of these patients getting squamous cell somewhere is high. But it's hard to determine the progression of an individual lesion. In other words, how do you determine which are the lesions to treat? There's a whole bunch of studies with AKs in terms of looking at this risk. I'm going to show you reasons why this is hard to do. Now, first of all, when you do the studies, it's very hard to count AKs. Some of them are palpable. Some of them you can see, but they're not palpable. If you only look at the clinically visible lesions, the ones you photograph, which are hard to do in the first place, you may undercount. And in somebody who's photodamaged, it's very hard to determine where one AK starts and stops and the next one starts and stops. And I'll just show you an example of that. This is a patient. This is a photo. If you were doing a study, you could see how hard it would be to count the AKs. My son is an MIT graduate, and he used some software on this, so I've highlighted where the AKs are for you. And now that I've shown you where they are, I'll take them off. Now you can sort of see them a little bit. But even with that, with the highlighting of the software, you still miss some AKs. So it's very hard to do these studies from photographs. One of the tricks when you're doing AK studies is you can use a self-tanner because the dihydroxyacetone actually stains the hyperkeratosis of the AKs. Great for counting AKs, bad for the subject who has brown spots all over their face for five to seven days, but uh, works well for the studies. The other thing is a lot of these studies have included numerous people under 50, as you know, AKs go up dramatically as you get older, so you might, you might not see the progression that existed because you just haven't followed these patients long enough. But this is the real question, as I said. This is a photo from Ted Rosen. This is a typical patient who comes in, got lots of AKs. 
which is the one that's going to progress to an AK? Which one should you biopsy? Which one should you treat if you're only going to treat one thing? Now, Ted was kind enough to share this picture with me. This is actually the one that progressed, but it was not intuitive by looking at that picture beforehand which one to treat. When you try to prog predict progression, there's very few papers out there. This is the one paper that was in the JAD about 10 years ago looking at this. They looked at 50 hyperkeratotic papular lesions on the back of the hand. It turned out there were 18 SCCs, 20 AKs, and 7 in situ uh, SCCs. And uh, basically, they tried to predict from this and those that were, had uh, less than one centimeter in diameter on the arms and the forearms had an increased invasive rate. But that's kind of a soft measure, but it was the best they could come up with, but it illustrates the fact that it's very hard to do this. So in terms of looking at the AK progression of limitations, there's lots of them out there because we know that three things can happen to individual AKs. They can regress, they can remain stable, or they can progress to invasive squamous cell. What are the management implications of all these things? Well, first of all, it's very clear we'd much rather treat something when it was early than it was advanced. I think all of us would agree it'd be better to treat an AK than treat an invasive squamous cell for all the reasons I list here. And this is actually a paper that was 10 years ago in the JAD from Steve Feldman looking at um, treatment of AKs. And what's really important here is that thing I underlined that said observation of AKs until some evolve into invasive squamous cell is considered substandard care. Well, that's one of those legal terms that you have to have a really good excuse not to do it, especially when it's in the literature. So the reality is that most AKs, not all, but most AKs do get treated. All AKs are probably considered for treatment. I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. Now the Academy has been actively working on this issue for over 12 years now, and it's really been a, a major effort because there was a period of time where um, the Medicare and various other groups were dialing back our ability to get treated or get covered for treatment of actinic keratoses. And in January 2000, I can't believe it's almost 10 years ago now, uh, the Academy came up with a special supplement on the treatment of AKs. And this is still actually quoted in terms of standard of care kinds of issues. But they concluded from this is that they're part of the progression to invasive squamous cell, be considered for treatment, and each of the treatment, each treatment of these lesions can result in lower mortality and even morbidity. Now, this for, if you don't know, is Clay Cockrell and uh, he deserves really the credit on this because on July 19, 2001, he and Tom Olson and Cliff Lober went to CMS at that time and finally got Medicare to agree that AK should be treated. And the only reason it happened was not for any scientific reasons. We were very fortunate because the new head of that division happened to have a wife who was a dermatologist. So I'd like to take this brilliant scientific argument, which is luck. But that did get straightened out. And really, most, most companies, and certainly the government, does not limit this. And there are good arguments for this. You look at the literature now, the treatment of pre-cancers of all types is really being focused on. This is looking at intraepithelial neoplasia for various other things. But when you look at this, again, if you think of the AK in the continuum, it's really one disease. You can see why it's important to treat these lesions before they become invasive. So I apologize, this was made in a different version of PowerPoint, so I'm going to, you see the drop shadows here, but the bottom line is the incidence of squamous cell carcinoma is rising and AKs are the potential precursors to squamous cells. The risk of progression of the patient is greater than the risk of progression of an individual lesion. Remembering there's about a 1% mortality from squamous cell carcinoma of the skin. Effective treatment lowers progression. All AKs should be considered for treatment. The need for mortalities to treat patients with multiple lesions is important, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And really, further studies are needed. If we could identify the subset of lesions that are progressing, that would be the optimal thing. We just don't have it there yet. Reminding you again, you think this is not a big deal, look at that cheek. This is the same patient two years later with an erosive uh, neurotropic invasive squamous cell. Two years, that's all it took for that. And hopefully you'll never see another picture like that again because you're going to treat your AKs. Okay. We know about surgical options for treating AKs with freezing things, obviously, you can do, but let's talk about some non-surgical options. This is actually a picture of uh, George Bush 41 that was on CNN and uh, noted that the Mayo Clinic had said that he'd undergone some topical treatment for sun-induced keratoses, close enough for CNN, and he had used 5-FU. This is just quotes from the CNN article, typical look on his face for that, and he would certainly be a poster child or a poster president for actinic keratoses, as to be fair, Bill Clinton's also had them, so it crosses party lines. <laughs> 
Certainly 5-FU is something that's done, and Carrick I view as kind of 5-FU light. It does work. Um, basically, this is a study that was from our textbook from Cancer of the Skin and just some photos. I think all of you know what patients look like who have been on uh, topical uh, 5-FU. Uh, diclofenac is another drug that's out there. Um, the idea behind diclofenac, it's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. And this is at least, they're not sure what the mechanism of action is, but this is the hypothetical mechanism of action that when ultraviolet light hits the skin, among other things, you have in increased COX-2 expression. That leads to increased prostaglandin E2, which leads to hyperplasia and angiogenesis and growth of the actinic keratoses. Now, if you use an NSAID, it blocks COX-2, so therefore it results in no increase in prostaglandin E2 and therefore either stopping of new AKs or shrinking and treating the old AKs. This is a paper from Jason Rivers, who's a formal fellow of ours uh, in NYU, who's now in uh, Vancouver. And he, this was one of the original trials, and they had a 33%, 100% clearance. Now, the problem with the AK studies is there's lots of apples and oranges. You have three different levels of what people look at. The FDA's hurdle is what percentage of the patients have 100% of their AKs go away. Now, that's you know, a very, very high hurdle, but you get low percentages for that. Another hurdle that's used is what percentage of the patients have 75% clearance, and then the third hurdle that's used, which is the easiest, is what percentage of the lesions disappear. And I think from a clinical point of view, that's the one that most of us use, because I think none of us expect, when you apply these topicals, that 100% of lesions are going to go away. But you'd like you know, 80, 90% at least to go away is a reasonable benchmark. This is, again, patients with solar rays, and just a typical thing that you might see. Photodynamic therapy is also used. How many of you use photodynamic therapy? Blue you to use. Um, you know, it's, it is effective. It does work. The idea behind it, again, is that you take a chemical, you sensitize these lesions to different wavelengths of light. You can see that the sensitizer that's used has a peak in the blue and violet area, so the blue light works quite well. You actually could use, if you have a halogen spot in your treatment room, it works quite well, too, because all the wavelengths are there, so you don't need the big blue U if you're using a smaller spot. And it does work. This is from Colin Morton in Scotland, who does a lot of PDT. And typically what the patient might look at, that middle one is about at about 10 days. PDT can also be used with squamous cell carcinoma in situ. This is data from Mitch Goldman to see with pretty good cosmetic results. The real downside of PDT is it's very painful. Um, I have a, uh, a patient who's one of the most, uh, probably one of the richest guys in the world. And he had lots of, we usually use PDT where we try to cover a lot of area. And uh, we gave him one treatment. And at the end of the treatment, he said he would give me all of his money if he never had to do that again. So I said, okay. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> That's basic thing in law, right? Uh, offer and acceptance is a contract. But he didn't, he didn't follow up on it, sadly. Now, certainly a Miklomod is used, and there are lots of studies. This is the original study eight years ago published in the British Journal of Dermatology from Agard Stockleff which was looking at patients who had multiple year history of AKs. They were treated three times a week for six to eight weeks, the pilot study, and it showed that, in fact, it did work. This was a study done by Mark Lebel that's typically quoted. It was really used for the FDA approval. And again, this is the FDA-recommended dosing for amiquimod because of the studies, which is twice a week for 16 weeks. How many of you actually use that regimen? Virtually nobody, few, but that's not your, you know, your primary reason for using it. And that's really the thing with amiquimod, that people have their own ways of using it. It's really non-standard. It's sort of a plus and a minus, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But in this study, they looked at two endpoints, the 100% clearance for the FDA and the partial clearance, greater than 75%. And you can see that complete clearance is a darker blue and partial clearance is a lighter blue. And when you look at that, what you see is that uh, clearly you get a pretty high cure rate these are, again, not the lesional clearance, but higher than you saw before uh, for the um, diclofenac. Now, this is the median reduction in AKs, and you can see for amiquimod, it was about 83%, which is usually at the high end of what you see for these topical agents. This is treatment, again, what you see from the study, and you can see typically, again, you guys have probably all used this in this room, so you know what this looks like. Now, what you do see with amiquimod is somewhat what you see with 5-FU in terms of the percentage clearance is a function of the degree of inflammation. So inflammation is good with this 
Too much is not always so good. You want to give the patient a rest period, but it is important. And they concluded from this study that, in fact, amicomod works. It was effective for AKs. And using the twice a week for 16 weeks, they only had a 3% dropout in terms of uh, adverse events of the patients. That's the argument for the, using it the longer period of time. And I will actually use that probably on uh, 5% of my amicomod patients who really don't want as big a flare and don't mind using it longer. But most people typically use it uh, three times a week for four weeks or something like that. That's probably the most common use for this. Now, this was another study that was very important by Egger Stockler. Three studies that were just published at the end of last year looking at uh, various things with amicomod. And this was kind of interesting. I'm going to go back one here if I can do that. Does that work? Back? Okay. This was a study done three times a week for four weeks, a four-week rest period, and then retreated if necessary on 820 patients in Germany. And this is the people, the clearance. This is full clearance, 100% clearance, 48% rest period, they got an additional 21% to clear after that, which was quite effective. If you looked at total number of lesions cleared, 86%. So that regimen, three times a week for four weeks, works. Now there were several other studies they did, and I'm going to get, they're, they're very uh, in-depth, but I'll give you the short versions of the key take-home message, which are very important. They took these same patients, they went through, and then they followed them for one year. And what they found was that not only was it effective in the short run, but it was effective in the longer run. So they decided to go to a different study, and they looked at 75 patients, so the numbers are small, three arms, omicromod three times a week for four weeks, 5-FU for four weeks, twice a day, or cryo, and then they returned in two weeks and re-cryo. Now, the cryo they used in Germany was 40 seconds per lesion, okay? Now, they're tougher than we are, right? Or we would go to jail for doing that. But I'm just telling you the degree of cryo they did. It was a long story why they picked that, but they did. And here is actually the results of clinical clearance at six months. This is at six months now. And here's clinical clearance at one year. So clearly, although they all were pretty good at the start, the clinical clearance was greatest for the amiquamod over these three. And by the way, this study was funded by nobody because they're not allowed to fund studies in Germany. So this was just independent research. Got the best cosmetic result. Then they also looked at field cancerization, and they did genetic studies looking at upregulation of P53 and P16. In other words, whether there's some reversion to the precancerous genetic patterns that you'd see and how effective this was. What was interesting was at the end of one year, in terms of change of oncogenes positively, the amicomod did better than the 5-FU in the cryo. So the amicomod appears to have not only treatment in the short term, but some effects in increasing clearance better than 5-FU. The histology was better. The cosmetic result was also better for this. So the bottom line from this is that we talk about field cancerization, which is an important concept. The idea behind this is the amicomod probably works better for that, and that's what you're trying to do with a topical agent. Don't look at this chart. The point, this is actually from our textbook. The idea behind this chart to show you there's a million ways to treat actinic keratoses. They all have their pluses and minuses. But the bottom line behind this is probably we're looking at actinic keratoses the wrong way. And that is we look at them as a lesion. We treat lesions. It's really a syndrome. It's people who have lots of sun damage, have actinic keratoses, have these lesions, have a greater risk of getting skin cancers of all sorts, need to be followed more closely, et cetera, et cetera. And again, if we look at this as a chronic problem, as opposed to an episodic problem, and we think of chronic treatment, that may be the way that things are going to change in the next couple of years. And I envision a time where you might have your patients come in, I'm making this up, the first week of January each year, and have a topical therapy that they use for this, because maybe that's the way in combination with picking off lesions with cryo. We'll talk about combination therapy a little later. Okay, let's talk about basal cell carcinomas a little bit. And certainly on sun-exposed skin, there's lots of ways to treat basal cells. You, once you do the biopsy, you can freeze them. You can DNC them, which is in the United States the most common way they are treated. You can excise them. Um, and there's a bunch of non-surgical options that you can use. Photodynamic therapy has been used for Bowen's disease, as I mentioned before, and for basal cell carcinoma. This is a patient from Colin Morton, and they got high clearance for small lesions. It seemed to be a pretty intense way to treat them, but it works. This is data for certainly large superficial basal cells. That may be one of the indications for this. Now, intralesional interferon, we know, can be used for treating basal cell carcinomas. This was data done at Scripps about 20 years ago, 
And the problem was the cure rate wasn't particularly high. It was only, as you see, about 81%, but it did work, but very expensive, and unfortunately had all the side effects you have of giving interferon to use this three times a week for three weeks. The patients all got flu-like syndrome, uh, and symptoms rather, and uh, also lost weight, which some people view as a positive. Um, so what's the rationale for using amiquimod for basal cell carcinomas? Well, basically, what amiquimod does is to induce the production of endogenous uh, uh, basically endogenous interferons so that you can get your own interferon to treat the basal cell and that's really how it works. This is the original paper looking at this from Robin Marks who I mentioned earlier and this was done in Australia. The Australians are tougher than we are too as you'll see from the study. Ten clinical sites that were used here, 99 patients, primarily male and they looked at different dosing regimens initially. They started twice a day, once a day, twice a day, three times a week or once a day, three times a week, all for six weeks, rest periods allowed, and the biopsies were looked at right afterwards to see if, in fact, the clinical clearance matched with the histologic clearance. So here's the results, and what you see is there's clearly a dose-response relationship. The higher doses did better, but note that the twice a day, seven days a week, there were three of three who did it. Everybody else dropped out. Nobody could tolerate that. So there's a trade-off between tolerability and efficacy, as I'll show you in a later study. But it did work, and as you expected, I, I thought these are very low. Uh, we usually see a lot more than 27% erythema, but again, I think the Aussies are tougher than we are, too. This was the study that's really used primarily as the basis for treating uh, basal cells with amiquimod. This was in the JAD, and this was a study done with Americans. And you can see here's the results where they compared the different dosing regimens. What was interesting was there was no difference between twice a day, once a day, or five times a week. Once you went to three times a week, it wasn't enough. And from this paper, the idea of treating five days a week for six weeks is really where that was derived and where that is currently the recommended regimen. Now, this was a follow-on study that was done in 2004 in the JAD looking at this. And what made this different was basically the lesions were treated, they were excised, 12 weeks after completing therapy, and then they were step-sectioned through. So they really looked to see if there was any persistence of tumor very carefully, as opposed to just doing one slice through a biopsy. So much more rigorous evaluation. And this is the data that's kind of interesting. When they looked at it, for complete clearance, clinical and histologic clearance, was lower than histologic clearance alone. So that meant that some of the lesions where the physician and the, the medical professional thought that there was, in fact, um, some residual tumor, there wasn't. So just because a little bit of redness there that persists after treatment does not mean that there's residual basal cell. This is the data, again, more consistent. You see about 90% had erythema, about 50% had crusting. That's more than you'd ex what you expect with this. But again, just like with AKs with amicomata, it appeared that the degree of inflammation was a function of the cure rate. So if you had moderate to severe, which was the majority of people, they had a 90% cure rate. But if you had none or mild, only a 50% cure rate. So if you don't see a big response, that is a hint that you might not be successful. However, what was interesting was, if you, this is what this chart shows was, if you thought it was clear, 10 times out of 11 it was clear. But if you thought it wasn't clear, only three times out of 10 it wasn't clear. So 70% of the time, when you thought the treatment had not been successful, it still was. So sometimes you can watch these patients a little bit. You don't have to run back and treat or retreat right away. Now this is a patient who I treated with amiquimod. Now, it have these, some of these photos are much more artsy than I take, and the reason is this woman is a fashion model and her husband's a fashion photographer, so this is not the picture I would normally shoot. Uh, but you look at her upper lip, and you can see, I don't have a pointer here at this point, a little bit, well, not really, but if you look right over here on her, this side of her upper lip over here, you'll see a little scar, and here's a lateral view, you can sort of see the spot, she'd had a biopsy there. And um, she did not want to have surgery. Understand, I think, that most surgery is probably the number one choice for basal cell carcinoma of the head and neck. But on the upper lip, there's no way to get a good cosmetic result. So she opted to have a micromod, and she came in two weeks later. And, uh, you know, she's a model. She comes in, you get a little worried That'll, in your stomach here when uh, she looks like this. But you know if you treat enough of these, she's going to be fine. And here's how she looked about four weeks after that, uh, completing her treatment. A little bit of erythema there, not bad. This is her full face, so you can see. And this is a close-up at one year. This is at three years. And you can see, it's a perfect cosmetic result. She was able to continue with her career. She obviously is extremely happy. And this is just the lateral view of the same thing. A little bit of hypopigmentation there. 
but I would argue better than any surgeon could do uh, in that area. And I do surgery, so I'm not arguing against surgery. Um, so that shows you again this can be done with a Micomod. And I probably treat, uh, I'm probably 40% of my patients now I treat with a Micomod, but with a technique I'm going to show you in a moment. When you look at the efficacy of various treatment options with basal cell carcinoma, there's a bunch of studies out there. This was actually a study that looked at the combination of all these things. And you can see that when you look at this, you look at the recurrence rate. Most surgery, obviously, is the best. Almost all of these are at a reasonable number, except for probably 5-FU topically. And most people don't use 5-FU topically for basal cells because unlike a, like a micromod, where you're actually getting a whole inflammatory response around the area, 5-FU really is just treating locally, so you can treat the top of a basal cell and not get the deeper component and run the risk of occurrence for it. So what about if you combine therapies? Wouldn't it make it sense to combine therapies to get a better result? Why so? Let's say we had two arbitrary therapies, therapy A and therapy B, and therapy A was 85% effective and therapy B was 90% effective. You'd expect if you treated with both of the therapies, at least you do as well as the better of the two of them, but you hope that there's some synergies and you do better than each of them individually. Several groups have looked at this at various things. This was a study looking at uh, combining cryosurgery and diclofenac for AKs. And what you see is that the combination of diclofenac and the cryo did better than the cryo alone with this. And again, over time, the patients did better with the diclofenac and cryo versus the cryo alone too. So combination therapy in that sense made sense. Now, not every one of them does make sense though. And this was a study that looked at basically combining, um, uh, looking at surgical excision, excuse me, and combining that with cryosurgery uh, and a curatage. So curatage and cryosurgery versus surgical excision for basal cells. Here, the surgical excision did better than the combination of the other two. So not every combination is perfect, but uh, a lot of them are. So people have looked at various ways of combining using a miquamod with treating basal cell carcinomas. This was a paper by Abel Torres where they looked at pre-treating Mohs cases with a miquamod. They either pre-treated with two weeks, four weeks, or six weeks. And it turned out if they pre-treated for four weeks or six weeks, there was a significantly smaller subsequent defect that was needed for the Mohs surgery. In other words, the pre-treatment of the amicomod shrunk the tumor so the Mohs cut was smaller and it led to a better result. Now, Jim Spencer did a pilot study, again, this is a small number of patients, of only 20 patients, where he compared DNC versus, um, uh, with a micromod versus the DNC alone, and what he saw basically is the combination was better than the individual treatment. Several people have looked at curatage alone for basal cell carcinoma. And why would they look at that? Well, if you think about it, if you do a DNC, what's really causing the scarring? Is it the curatage or the electrodesiccation? It's clearly the electrodesiccation which is burning the skin. So if you could treat with curatage alone, you'd get a better cosmetic result. But the cure rates with curatage alone are less that you get with curatage and DNC. And these are three studies. Here's one that showed uh, a 10.5% recurrence rate over 15 years with curatage alone. Another study with 400 patients showing a 15% recur recurrence rate with curatage alone. Another one showing a 9%. So not bad, but if you could add something to that curatage and get a higher cure rate, would that be better? And so this is actually a more recent study. I'm still looking at the same thing <clears throat> that was in the JAD again, with uh, 96%, which I think is probably higher than reasonable. So let's tell you what would happen. Could you combine a miquamod with curatage alone to get a high cure rate and get good cosmetic result? Several people have looked at this. This was a paper several years ago in the Australian Journal. They looked at a series of 34 basal cells, and basically 32 of the 34 were histologically clear with a combination of a miquamod and curatage. The lesions were excised three months later, so this was histologic clearance. This is a paper that we did that uh, myself, Abel Torres, and Haynes Ely did, looking at 57 basal cells, both nodular and superficial. They were curated alone. One week later, the amicomod was started, five days on, two days off for six weeks. I tell my patients to use it weekdays on, weekends off, easy to remember, for six weeks. So curatage, wait a week, six weeks of five days on, two days off. Now, the result, at one year, there were no clinical recurrences at all. 
excellent cosmetic results. I'll show you some of the results. And the cosmetic results were definitely better than D and C's. Now you say you always worry about zero out of 50 something, zero, what's going on here? But here's actually the data from three years. We lost three patients to follow up, but zero of 54 were clear at three years. Now here's just some of the, the data from the study. And again, I, I don't have a pointer. This woman had three basal cells on her back. So we did, the one that's on the upper left um, was basically treated with the DNC. The one in the middle of the lower back was treated with a Miquelon alone. And the one that's on the upper right, which I'll show you a close-up of, you can probably just barely see, uh, was treated for the study. This is at three months. This is a close-up. This is what the one on the, was treated with DNC looked like, as you expect, hypertrophy erythema. This was the one in the middle of the lower back, some mild erythema. And this is the one of the study. You can see it's just barely there. I think you'd agree for a trunk, that's a pretty good cosmetic result. And that's an average result I'm showing you. Here's a patient who had two lesions on his forearm. We only allowed to use one lesion of the study, so we kind of use these as parallels. And you can see on the right arm, there's a little scar above the area that we treated, so don't look at that scar. The right arm was treated with the study. The left arm is treated with DNC. Here's a close-up of the two lesions in three months. I think you'd agree for the forearm lesions much better with treating this way. And this is a patient who is a uh, firefighter in New York of Irish extraction, had a load of basal cells. He conveniently came in with three basal cells on his acromial process on his shoulder. And you can see, here's a close-up of them. The leftmost one was treated with excision. The one in the middle where you see that mild hypopigmentation, that was the study. And the one on the right was treated with DNC. That's at three months. And you can see a, a, really a pretty good result there. Here's at two years, and you notice my uh, excision recurred. <laughs> so uh, now the three of them, that was actually one that should have recurred, it did. So he needed some Mohs there. This is about the worst result we had. And this was a patient from the study, you can see right out of the middle of the chest, had some hypopigmentation there, but had a large superficial basal cell. Pretty macular though, looks pretty good, I think. I think you'd accept that in area, and certainly much better than you could do with excisional surgery in that site. She, by the way, was very pleased with this. This is the final patient I'm gonna show you, and this is a woman that you never wanna see in your practice. I mean, this woman is always miserable. This is like, I mean, she's been my patient for 20 years. I could, this is about the most I could ever get her to smile, ever, right? And uh, she always comes in, you know, usually it's the end of a day when you're tired already and she can't get her out of there. Um, the bottom line is that she had had Mohs on her nose, and I'll show you a close-up before, and she just didn't want to have any more Mohs, and she just said, I, I just want some other treatment. So she had another lesion which we treated. This is actually post-treatment. And if you look at it, you probably can't even see where we treated her on the rest of her face. I'll show you a close-up. Here's the nose and you can see the flap that she had done on her nose about three years earlier. And here's the upper lip. Is that mild hypopigmentation there? That's about, that was with curatage and a Miquelmont to use. And I think you'd agree, that's a pretty good cosmetic result for that location. I would tell you that she's an average result for what we get from this. So, you know, it's really made a difference in the way we treat patients with basal cell carcinoma for this. So in summary, again, I apologize for the drop shadowing, but basal cell, non-melanoma skin cancer is the most common of cancers. We know the incidence is rising dramatically and certainly interest in non-surgical modalities is really increasing. We think about it in terms of medical and surgical ther therapy for non-melanoma skin cancer, but the reality is the differences between them are blurred. And in the future, what you're going to be seeing more of is combination therapy. That's really where it's at because I think we're going to be seeing lots of new studies coming out leading to more medical and surgical and combination approaches in the future for non-melanoma skin cancer. And I hope uh, within a couple of years you guys will honor me by having me back here so I can give you the update at that time. Thank you very much and I'll take questions. Thank you. Question. Yeah, um, in our clinic we've been using Aldera once weekly to uh, you know, usually post uh, like a blue light treatment to hopefully prevent skin cancer. Have you ever tried that? And to not have the inflammation. Usually it's the patients who say, oh, I've done Aldera twice weekly and I don't want to ever do it again. Um, I don't know, you know, it's an interesting point. It leads up to my comment that I say everybody has their own way of using yeah. Amiquamod, right? They do. Yeah. So um, I've not heard of a once weekly use. I've heard some people have tried to use it chronically in fact, ironically, the only thing I, and this is the first time I'm hearing this, the only thing I've heard of a once-weekly use for a period of time is actually for uh, photo-aging treatments. Oh, well. And it works quite well for that. Right. But I've tried to tell Graceway they should come up with, like, Aldera Cosmetic or something. Totally. You know? Because <laughs> it does work. I mean, treat the patient, they look a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sure, it, it can't hurt. 
You'd really have to do a study to really uh, quantitate how effective it is. And I think that they are working on that. What, what about um, seriatine for patients who have numerous squamous cell carcinomas? You know, I, I, just in the interest of time, I didn't put that in yeah. there of using seriatine. And it's uh, the, the one, I'm not a big user of it just because of the monitoring that's required for the patients. It's really intense monitoring. There are a lot of side effects, as you know. The one time I do use it is for my patients with basal cell nevus syndrome. Uh, and uh, I just, you know, there are not a lot of those, but there's some that I do follow yeah. because you just have to cover so much area and you have to prophylax it, but you have to follow the patients very carefully. So that, that is the one time I do use Okay, them. great. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi there. When you do the curatage without the EDNC, can you still code for destruction of a malignant lesion? Everybody always asks that. The answer is yes, because destruction of any form is with just the same code. Okay. So, because curatage is the same as curatage, electrodesiccation, the same as uh, cryoing off a basal cell, um, every kind of destructive modality you can think of. But yes, it is coded that way. Thank you. And do you have problems with hemostasis if people are on Coumadin when you just do the curatage? Do you just do a high um, aluminum chloride? Or? Okay, I assume everybody can hear all. I have a clogged ear, so I assume everybody can hear the question. I can hear your question. So. Okay. Um, with the question is about hemostasis and patients on Coumadin, it's not a problem because what we do is we'll do the curatage alone and then we use just aluminum chloride. That's fine. I mean, it's, what strength aluminum chloride do you use? What percentage? Um, whatever we get out of the bottle, 1%. 35%? Yeah, whatever, whatever they get, whatever the pharmacist sends us. I, I should know the answer to that. I've been buying it for so many years, but I think there's only one flavor. So. But it just works. And if it doesn't work, we use Moncel's. So I usually try not to use Moncel's a lot because I don't like the tattooing, but that's just a personal preference to use. Could you talk about the efficacy of uh, Aldera versus PDT for the treatment of AKs? The efficacy of Aldera versus PDT for AKs. Okay. Um, the most of the thing, I, I actually left that slide out in the interest of time. I have a slide of all the comparison. Typically, the topical treatment that has the highest uh, individual lesion, median lesion reduction of the studies that are out there is Amikamon, is Aldara. If you look, you know, but again, some of that's apples to oranges. That's why I hesitate in answering the question. It has to do with which, which uh, regimen was used, uh, what the endpoints were. If I, if I used an endpoint of 100% clearance and I gave you drug A, where only the patients had three lesions, and drug B, all the patients had 50 lesions, the chance of giving 100% clearance, even if drug B was better, would be lower. So it's very tricky to do that. But all the topical modalities are pretty good. Of them, at least in my experience, at least, and that's just my opinion, that the Aldara does the best. Uh, two questions about the combination treatment of the basal cells. Um, are you just doing one pass with your curette? Yes, um, just one, yeah, because okay. I mean, but there's nothing... You know, you do three passes of VSC because you cure it out, you cure right, it, and you right, right. electrodesicate. It's just, you okay. cure it by feel. And okay. if, you're, if you mm -hmm. feel you're, it's a really mushy basal cell and you're going down, you're going to stop and excise mm -hmm. it. But you can do small nodular basal cells with this because okay. you're bulking it too. That was my other question. If you're seeing similar results and feel comfortable treating all types of basal cell, yes. I mean, would you treat a... a um, Anamorphia yeah. basal cell. That's the one exception. How about right? an infiltrating? Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Infiltrating morphia. That's 1% of basal cells. That is the one treatment, where one, one flavor of basal cell where basically most surgery is indicated. I mean, yeah. you know, primary modes for that because you just, you know, it's just not in a nice, uh, discreet lump. Right. Uh, in a tumor. It's basically got tentacles. It's infiltrating by definition. Right. But that, that's 1% of lesions. But... Uh, beyond that, yes. In fact, mm -hmm. of the study, the 57 cases I showed you, 35 of them were nodular basal cells. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Okay. Um, have you ever, when you were using Eldera, have you ever had a patient that has actually depigmented with their skin? And full kind of like a vitiligo-like response? Depigmentation at the site of treatment or full depigmentation? No, where, where you are treating them. I've never had a depigmentation. I have hypopigmentation. I showed you the The worst one I had was the one I showed you. I wanted to show you the extreme example. Okay. You, you do see some high, mild to moderate hypopigmentation as a possibility, but it's less than if you cryo them off. I had, a, I had a gentleman that I used that on, and he was significantly depigmented. And, it, and I, didn't, I, didn't, I lost him to follow-up, but I didn't know how long that would take to actually repigment. They will, at least in my experience, the one, I've never had a complete depigmentation. I've had hypopigmentation. Typically, they will resolve about 50% from when you initially see the hypopigmentation. There's some migration of melanocytes back into the area. Okay. But I've never seen a full depigmentation. Okay. Yes, can you comment on the new, new Aldara strength 
and if you've had any experience, the Eldara 3.5 or 3.75. Okay, well, I, did, I purposely didn't comment because it's not released yet, but uh, I you know, have some experience, yes, I was involved in some of the trials. Um, you know, without going into too much detail, uh, I think it's going to be very interesting. It's going to change the way I treat patients because of the fact that the dosing has been optimized, dosing as well as the, the treatment regimen has been optimized to minimize the side effects and maximize the efficacy. So it'll give you that little bit of teaser because the FDA hasn't finalized with it. And, I, and we have a paper coming out of JAD on it, on the study that we did. So it's, uh, uh, I think it's going to change the way I'm going to use it. Thank you. My question is related to a previous question. Have you run into any problems with insurance coverage coding for the curatage as a destruction and then paying for the prescription benefit of the Eldara, especially in Medicare populations? No. Okay. <laughs> That's that simple answer? No, really. I mean, it's destruction. If you, the destruction code is the destruction code. And if the Medicare or some other insurance plan pays for the prescription, it's not, they're not paying the, you know, the physician or, or the PA. So it's not... Um, it's not an issue. It's sort of two separate things. And, I mean, that's, you know, the, the, the only downside of doing this that I see is it takes seven weeks to do it as opposed to a surgical fee that might heal quicker. But most, you know, I'm, I'm in New York City, so patients usually will rush. Uh, despite that, most patients, when they've seen the difference, would much rather do this. They'll take the time to do it. And, in fact, every patient we had in that study who's had subsequent basal cells has demanded to have their basal cell treated that way because they've had prior basal cells and they see the difference to do. And it's pretty nice when you have, you've got young, fair-skinned women in their late 20s and early 30s who already had a couple of basal cells primarily on their chest and they've had terrible healing for other things. This really makes a difference in doing that. Thank you. Could you comment on use of Aldar in a transplant patient? Okay, again, so for transplant, I only left it out in the interest of time. It is, you know, one of the concerns with a transplant patient using Aldara, I'll give you the caveat first, is that basically these people are immunosuppressed and you're inducing an immune response. So you want to make sure you're not going to get rejection from doing that. Most of the, well, the studies that are out there suggest that that's not an issue. And even the transplant surgeons who are following these patients for their organs basically don't have a problem with using Aldara. There is a, an interest group within the academy who are of dermatologists who deal primarily with these transplant patients, they recommend Aldara or Micamon as their treatment of choice for these patients to try to keep things under control. It's very hard to treat these patients. You're always behind. I mean, they're developing hundreds of squamous cells at all for other things to this. But that is my treatment of choice to try to at least uh, you know, keep things in check on these patients. And we follow a number of these patients that way. There's really no good way to do it. Soriatane is another thing you could use in these patients too, but that has its other issues, especially in the transplant patients with the, all the other drugs they have going. Thank you. All right, well at that point, listen, thank you again so much for having me. It's been my great pleasure to be here.